0: This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by the Full Focus Planner, a paper planner to help you plan your year, design your days, and achieve your biggest goals. Find out more at FullFocusPlanner.com. Hi, I'm Michael Hyatt.
1: And I'm Megan Hyatt Miller.
0: And this is Lead to Win, our weekly podcast to help you win at work, succeed at life, and lead with confidence. And this episode is going to be a little bit different as we dip into the mailbag and answer your questions.
1: Every time we do a live event, we get lots of questions from attendees, usually more than we have time to answer. At our Achieve conference, our producer, Nick Jaworski, opened the mic and asked attendees if you could ask Michael and Megan anything, what would it be? We also got lots of questions through social media.
0: So we've asked our senior writer, Larry Wilson, to select a few of those questions for us. So welcome to the program, Larry. Hey, thank you. It's really great to be here. Glad to have you. Well, it was really hard to sort
2: through all these questions because they're such a variety and a lot of them have real passion behind them. People Mm. are really uh, working at using some of the products. Some of the questions were about that, but really about... Uh, Getting focused, getting my goals in order, and a lot of that gets to real life change. And so people are really asking in earnest about some important themes here. So I think we get some really interesting questions. Let's get to the first one, and this comes from a lady named Patty, and she was one of our Achieve attendees who lives in New Orleans and recently had a tragedy in her family, and her question is related to that. So let's listen to what Patty asks.
1: My question for Michael is, has he ever encountered a personal hard setback where he's had to strategize and come back from? Losing your spouse will take your confidence, your enthusiasm, and everything you know. So my question for Michael is, what personal setback what tragedy has he had to climb back from, and what were the three most important tools he used?
0: Well, I've never experienced a tragedy like the loss of a spouse or the loss of a child. That's for sure. And I can't even imagine what that would be like or how you would climb back from that. So I have tremendous empathy for that, but I don't have experience with that. So all I can relate to is my own setbacks, and I, I have gone through some that, at least for me, felt very significant. And there were times when um, I I wondered if I would be able to come back. And I remember when my biggest, most important client fired me. And that felt like, I mean, literally for weeks, I wandered around in a daze because it felt like it destroyed my why. You know, it was a huge motivation for me to, to serve this individual. And when he fired me, seemingly out of nowhere, inexplicably, it really confused me. It made me angry. And I just wanted to give up. I thought, you know, if I've, if I've given my best work to this individual, if I've done my best work, if I've served him, and from my perspective, tirelessly, and he didn't see it as that, then what's my work worth? You know, what, what, what am I doing? And so for me, it just took a while. And I, w- I would say that anytime you go through a setback, you got to be kind to yourself. You know, I would start there. It's going to take some time. Time doesn't heal all things, but it does help most things. And so for me, it was just time to kind of work through the emotion of that. You know, every day was, uh, um, it was, it was a little bit of a step forward. And over time, it really helped me. But I also had to, and I couldn't do this immediately, but I also had to reframe it. You know, I had to ask myself, and this is a hard question to ask. And I don't know how you would, I don't know how you'd answer this question if you lost somebody. But for me, I was able to ask the question, what's the gift in this? Again, a very hard question. You don't want to ask it too soon. But to ask, what's the gift in this? And for me, in the loss of that, that client, it helped me really reevaluate everything in terms of why am I doing what I'm doing? Uh, why am I doing it when I don't get the accolades or when people don't recognize the contribution I'm making? You know, Am I performing, performing for a bigger purpose than that? You know, So what was the gift in this? It, it was really a, a, a gut check and a motivation check for me. And I had to also go back and evaluate sort of the process. You know, how did, I, how did I end up in this situation? You know, once I stopped blaming and started owning, everything began to shift. Like, was there anything that I could have done differently in this that would have resulted in a different outcome? And as it turns out, There were a lot of things. Like, I could have done a much better job communicating on the front end. I didn't do a very good job of giving him or his family updates on the progress that I was making on their behalf. I kind of assumed that they could read my mind and that they knew what I was doing. So the whole point is not exactly what I did, but the point is that it caused me to go back and reevaluate, kind of take ownership and reevaluate what I could do uh, differently. And then I started setting some new goals. So the, the, the key thing here is I had to process the past. And, you know, frankly, there were some things that I did well that I didn't want to lose. But there were also some things that I didn't do so well. And those are the things that I wanted to process and get, get better at. So when she asked about three tools, you know, those are the, kind of the, the, the three things that I did. You know, I gave it time. And then I asked myself, you know, process the past and asked myself what I could do better the next time. So I reframed it. And then the third thing was I began to set some new goals. And I think to rebuild your confidence, that's what it's going to take. You're not going to drift into more confidence by doing nothing. You're going to have to begin to start achieving some things. And you know the, the goals need to be in your discomfort zone, but don't get them in your delusional zone because again, you want to build confidence. So kind of go to your comfort zone, tweak them up a little bit so they're in your discomfort zone and then begin to pursue them. That will open up a new future for you.
1: The only thing I would add to that is that um, avail yourself of outside resources you know when you go yes. through something that is tragedy level you know devastating the loss of a spouse or a child or a business or you know an illness or, or things of that nature you probably need some outside help you may need practical help but you also may need some psychological support you and I have mm-hmm. both done extensive therapy and benefited mm-hmm. greatly from that and there's a real uh, value in in giving yourself this time and space um, to go through that process so yeah
0: I I really believe in that, too. Michael and
2: Megan, you have talked a lot about the Eisenhower matrix, the two-by-two matrix of importance and urgency that you use to filter tasks. And our next question comes from Tandi, and uh, she has a question that has to do with that importance and urgency as it relates in the workplace. And there's not always agreement about what's important and what's urgent. So let's listen.
1: My question is how to deal with people who want to ask you to do things that are in the level three quadrant that are not important, but they are making urgent. So they're not on my list. They are not my superior, but they act like they are, and they try to treat me like they are. How do you tell them no? This is a great question, and it's one we get a lot. Certainly, if you know your boss is asking you to do something that they consider to be both urgent and important, then you have to respond accordingly to that. That's, that's critical. And, you know, if there's an issue there, then you kind of have to navigate it um, with their best interest in mind. But I think if you're talking about a peer, who's asking you to do something that is not important or urgent to you, but is uh, urgent to them. First of all, I think you have to start with an adult conversation. You know, the book that we have loved in the last year is called radical candor. Um, It was in our leader box in the month of December. And uh, Uh, has just gotten great feedback. But, you know, just to be very direct and say, I'd love to help you with that and I can do it at such and such a time. Just because someone asks you doesn't mean that their priorities are more important than yours. Also, I think trying to find a way if it's possible, and it's not like a, a boundary issue on a regular basis, to create a win-win solution is very helpful. Um, if you can find a way to meet that need, but in a way that doesn't disrupt your own priorities. So again, not just a flat no, unless it's um, you know truly an issue violating your boundaries, but I can get that to you by this time and then follow through on it um, so that you can follow through on your own commitments, sometimes that's all they need is a commitment to do something by a certain point that feels reasonable to, to them. Their, their default is right now, but if right now isn't an option to you, then four o'clock this afternoon or into business would also be satisfactory or tomorrow or the end of the week. Um, so to put a definite time on it, I think can be very helpful.
0: Well, I have uh, at least one thing to add, and that is I think if you can put a pause between their request mm. and your response... Yep. It gives you an opportunity to dial down the emotion of it and not feel the need to do something rash and stupid. So if you can say, well, let me think about that, and this takes discipline, let me think about that and I'll get back to you tomorrow, then all of a sudden you don't have them right in your face where the urgency of it, you're feeling it viscerally, but it's something that takes the emotion out of it, then you can respond in a way that is better for you. The second thing is, I also like to have my most important time already scheduled even if I'm only blocking time for myself.
1: This is a really important point.
0: Yeah. So that I can say legitimately, you know, I'd love to help you, but I already have another commitment. Now, I don't have to go into detail about the commitment. By the way, this happened to me just this week. I don't go into detail about the commitment. The commitment in my case was that I had an appointment with myself to work on an important project that for me was important, but it wasn't urgent and I kept postponing it. So I wanted to get to it. So I just said, you know I have another uh, commitment then, could we talk about something maybe the week after? I don't really have any other time this week. Well, what are they going to say? You know, because they're not going to say, "Well, I expect you to bump that other person or bump that other commitment." Everybody understands that kind of language. And so I find that that's a that's a really practical way to deal with that kind of situation.
2: We talk a lot about culture here at Michael Hyatt & Company, and we've talked a lot on this podcast about culture. This question came in through Instagram from Will, who is a creative director, and uh, he wants to know, how do you create a positive culture when the boss seems to have little
0: or no interest in it? That's not that unusual. I would say for the vast number of business leaders, they're unaware that culture is even a thing. You know, it's, it's like the fish swimming in the water. It's just the environment they live in, and they're completely oblivious or unaware about what's happening in the culture. And I think that it takes real intention to be aware and to begin to shape culture, which you absolutely can do. Here's the good news. No matter where you are in the organization, you can have an effect. You can shape culture. And I think it, it requires a couple of things. And I've done this myself Uh, in a previous assignment where I was kind of in the middle of the organization. I didn't like the culture. The leadership seemed oblivious to it. I was very much aware of it. I experienced it every day, the negative impact of it every day. And so for me as a leader, you know, and I had a small department at the time, I had to get crystal clear on, first of all, what I didn't like about the culture. That's the easiest part because you see stuff that uh, you don't like, like for example, gossip or backbiting or a lack of transparency or, you know, just a really hierarchical relationship where there's no collegiality or collaboration, get really clear on what you don't like and then create a twist or create a shift so you say, okay, what's the opposite of that? You know, if I don't like opacity, for example, or a lack of transparency, what would be the opposite of that? Will be transparency? You know, if I don't like sort of a stilted kind of formalism, well, what would be the opposite of that? Maybe a a casual kind of openness and authenticity. So then get clear on what you do want. And then here's the most important part. You got to start living like the thing you want. In other words, you got to manifest the behaviors of this different kind of culture that you're trying to create because the biggest influence you can have is going to come out of your life, not out of your head. So you can talk about it till you're blue in the face. But unless you're living that different reality, you're not going to be very persuasive and have an impact in the culture.
1: I like that because I think even if you don't have authority, you can still have influence.
0: Definitely. And, and that's leadership.
1: And that's leadership. And there's so that's so empowering. And it means that no matter where you are, you can shift things, even if you can't ultimately control things.
0: Hey, everyone. Mike Boyer here. I hope you're enjoying this Q&A with Michael and Megan. Many of these questions were received through our social media channels. So if you're not already following Michael on Facebook and Instagram, do that today. We'd love to hear from you too. Also, if you're not already a subscriber to Lead to Win, you can do that now. You can tap Subscribe on your device, or if you need some help, just visit Lead2.Win/Subscribe. We'll show you exactly how to do it. Now, back to the show.
2: Megan, I want to direct this question first to you because it comes from uh, Nick in Fresno, California, and he says, any advice for parents of four kids ages <laughs> four, two, one, and three months old? So,
1: <laughs> Hang in there. It gets easier. <laughs> yeah.
2: You are uh, a mom to four kids, and yes. you may know something about that. Yes. What would you say to Nick?
1: Well, seriously, though, it does get easier. I mean, you're in the thick of it right now. So um, I have a lot of empathy for that. And I can remember those days for sure. My kids are a little older. But um, I would say you have to set a low bar for yourself. So when you hear us talking about things, um, you have to remember that – it needs to be adjusted for whatever season of life you're in. This can also be true, by the way, if you're older and you're caring for aging parents, which is much like caring for young children in a lot of ways. You know, you have to be adjusting your life constantly to whatever the demands are on the personal side in particular. You're about
0: to get experience with that,
1: <laughs> with me. <laughs> I'm not ready to think about that yet, <laughs> probably because I still have kids at home. Um, but for example, practically, that means in your morning routine, it may need to be very short. When my kids were the ages of your kids, I was doing about a five-minute morning routine, and I felt like a total champ if I could make coffee and do a five-minute devotional, you know, alone without being interrupted by children. And that's where I started. Honestly, it was that small. And over the years, I've added to it. You know, now I've exercise as a part of it. I work on my planner. Um, but I tried to figure out what could I do consistently day after day that no matter what happened and who was up in the middle of the night and how early they got up. What could I do that I could consistently repeat day after day? And that gave me enormous momentum and confidence that I was able to build on later. So, um, you know, for example, in the planner, just focus on the big three each day, set your big three for the day. And once you've got that, you can always add to something else. But you want to give yourself small wins that you can build on over time and just be kind and patient with yourself. I mean, my guess is you're probably not sleeping more than two hours at a time right now, and (laughs) that's a lot. So (laughs) it's challenging.
0: I would say the most important thing at these ages is spend time with your kids.
1: Yes. I mean,
0: I wished I could go back and recapture some of that time. And I thought so many of the things were so important, like career advancement and, you know, making my mark on the world. And and all those are important. You'll have plenty of time for that, but you're never going to have this moment again. I agree. And so slow it down, slow it down, spend more time than you think you need with those kids. The investment will head off a lot of problems later on too.
1: It's so true. And with your spouse, because you guys are in this together and um, it's, it's a lot. And those investments will also pay off in the future. And if you um, kind of abandon her with the kids, you know, because you're at work or, uh, you know, you're just overly consumed with something, it's going to cause problems later on. So keep the main thing, the main thing.
2: We have talked a lot on the program about the value of hiring an assistant. And Michael, you've preached this from the early days of your starting a business. You need help. You need even a part-time virtual assistant is a big help. But a lot of people have a huge hurdle in getting to do that. So I think Tanya is asking for a lot of people uh, when she's asking this next question.
1: My question for Michael would be how I... Educate myself to take advantage of a service like Belay, which can offer me a virtual personal assistant, which I so desperately need. I got to learn how to give up the control and the trust to let those things happen, and I cannot quite grasp how to do that.
0: Let me start by recommending two books. One is a book that I wrote called The Virtual Assistant Solution. And it's a small book, but it talks about my experience having hired a virtual assistant for the first time. It's a little bit different than a person that's not virtual, but the principles uh, still apply. And I think it's a great place to start. Another book is a book called Virtual Freedom by my good friend, Chris Ducker. And it's very powerful too. In fact, I love the title Virtual Freedom. But it shows you how to start small. It gives you the vision for what... You can do with a virtual assistant, and why it just makes smart economic sense to hire somebody to whom you can offload the stuff that you hate so that you can focus on the stuff that you love, and more importantly, the stuff that you can bill for. Because there's a lot of stuff that we do that somebody else can help with that we can't bill to anybody. And as an entrepreneur, the more you can focus on revenue generating activity, the faster your business is going to grow, the better your profit's going to be. And the more your business is going to move forward. So I would start there. You have anything to add, Mick?
1: Well, as far as I know, Belay has a whole process of onboarding through their relationship managers that will help automate this process for you. So you don't really have to figure it all out on your own. Um, Certainly those are great resources and you want to avail yourself of them, but um, there's some built-in support that uh, Belay Solutions offers. And I would just take full advantage of that if you're a new client with them. Um, But in terms of giving up control, I think first of all, you do it a little bit at a time. Mm -hmm. You start with something like your calendar, and then maybe you Move on to your email, and then so on and so forth. And as you see those wins, you get in a position where you can't not do it. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's too beneficial and too rewarding, um, and so you you have to take kind of a risk at the beginning. But then the rewards are just a no brainer after a while.
0: Well, you know, I thought I had too. As you were talking about that, is I, I treat everything in business, every new initiative as an experiment. Mm-hmm. Might work, might not. If it doesn't work, you know, no big deal. You know, I'll right. go back to how I was doing it before. If it does work, it might be a game changer and really advance my business. So when you hire a virtual assistant, just, and this is how I started, I said, I'm going to try this for five hours a week, but I would think of it as an experiment. Give it a try. You owe it to yourself. You hear people like me and other people saying you need an assistant, give it a try. If it doesn't work, what have you lost? Maybe a little bit of time, maybe a little bit of money, but I'm promising you, I've never had anybody that's done it that's gone back. Well, I think we
2: have time for maybe one more question. And this one, again, comes in through uh, social media. And if you're not, by the way, following Michael Hyatt on Instagram, uh, it's a great follow. So I think you should do that. Robin from New York has a question about meetings. And a lot of people do spend a lot of time in meetings, as you know. So she wants to know, how do you run a meeting with people who don't want to be
0: there? Fire (laughs) them. Maybe not.
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I would ask, why are they there if they don't want to be there?
0: Well, you, you can see why. I mean, if their boss makes them come, you know, like, for example, the the weekly status update meeting or production meeting that everybody, before they get there, roll their eyes, but the boss requires it.
1: Right. So there's probably two solutions to that. Either you need to figure out how to make your meetings more interesting and, you know, run them more efficiently, or you need to help those people connect with their why. Or they need to leave. I mean, there's really not, I don't know what else you're going to do, you know? And I think you can help people connect to their why by talking about what's in it for them. How does this benefit them? You know, like kind of reverse sell them so that they understand the connection between their work and what they're responsible for and what they're passionate about and the reason for attending the meeting.
0: This is the work of the leader.
1: It is the work of the leader.
0: And And it's critically important. We constantly have to be connecting people's actions that seem mundane. Yes. And maybe not purposeful, Mm -hmm. we've got to inject purpose and meaning into those by connecting them to the larger mission of the organization.
1: And in terms of the meeting itself, you've got to have an agenda. You've got to have a very clear purpose and very clear outcomes. It is amazing how often this does not happen and how (laughs) not common sense it is. When you're showing up to a meeting without an agenda... It can be really frustrating to high producers. It can be really frustrating to people who are very action oriented and it just feels like you're wasting their time. And if you're a leader, you cannot waste people's time.
0: I said to somebody the other day, I was in a meeting, this was a nonprofit where I'm on the board and somebody called for a meeting and I said, okay, great. I said, do you have an agenda? And they said, no. And I said, well, first of all, how are you going to know when the meeting's over? Right. The way most people know when the meeting's over in most organizations is the clock tells them. It was a one hour meeting. We've had a one-hour meeting. Now we're done. Here's the cool thing when you have an agenda. I ran another meeting for another board that I'm on, and this was my meeting. I had an agenda. We had set aside an hour for the meeting. We finished in 35 minutes. Meeting was over. Everybody got 25 minutes back because the goal was to get to the agenda and accomplish the outcomes, not just to mark time. Absolutely. Can, can we do one more
2: question?
1: We could do yeah. one more question.
2: One more question. All right. Because Nick, our producer, has a question burning on his mind.
1: <laughs> Can't wait.
2: This
0: is so exciting. Hi, everybody. Okay. So <laughs> I'm uh, clearly a very accomplished individual in that I'm sitting in this room. So that's very exciting. <laughs> but uh, I, from being at the Achieve conference and talking to some people who are also there, people who are taking um, this need to be organized very seriously, I, I know that some of them are like me who get things done, but it often can be chaotic. And we look at people like you and we go, the goal of being organized almost feels like an endpoint. The goal is to get organized so that you can accomplish other things. But for those of us down at the bottom, we're like, how does it feel to be so organized? That, that feeling alone would be so gratifying. So do you derive joy from that? I'm so organized. Look at me. I'm proud of this. Or is it just a tool to get to the end? Okay. It's a total illusion. I'm honestly not that organized. Yeah. I think people perceive now. me I think people perceive that I'm super organized and super detailed. I'm really not. For me, I want to be as organized as I need to be to get the job done, but no more organized than I need to be. I don't just enjoy
1: It's not like a hobby. Of it's being not like organized. a hobby.
0: Yeah, I mean if you walked into my closet today, I mean periodically, all my shirts will be lined up, all the colors the same, but it's like a total mess right now. You know, I just got back from a trip and I dumped a bunch of stuff in there and it's just, you know, my shoes are all disorganized, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't slow me down. Where disorganization bothers me when it in, is when it impedes my progress. Mm-hmm. For me, I get really fixated on organizing when I should be doing something else. Like when I should be writing a book, you know, all of a sudden I decide it's time to declutter the office, you know, because that's a whole lot easier than writing the book. But it is not an end game for me. Is it for you, Meg?
1: Well, I'll say this. Clarity is an in game. Okay, but that's clarity fair. Clarity is a blast. Because when you have clarity, it's like being aerodynamic, you know, you can, you can just move through life faster and easier and with less friction. And that I would say is all it's cracked up to be. (laughs) So that's really what I'm striving for is clarity and reducing friction. Um, So when I think about being organized, where I get frustrated with things not being organized and really take action to make them organized is where I can feel the friction of inefficiency. You know, there's some process that is slowing me or the people that report to me down there's something that uh, makes it difficult to find or things that are just broken. That stuff drives me crazy and I'm all over fixing it. And when I have fixed it or, or more likely I have delegated it to someone else who's expert at fixing it, it is like a high, you know, that feels great, but well, not for its own sake.
0: Well, and this is the other thing that both of, that, that you and I both do is we pay people to keep us organized. Yes. So for example, right. uh, I just got back from New York. I went up there and, and did a speaking engagement. And Jim, who's my assistant, prepares this thing called an event briefing form, which is basically everything I need to know about that event organized by day, all my confirmation numbers, all the important documents related to it.
1: Like if you lost your total memory and had amnesia, oh you could gosh. wake up that day and still go do everything you were supposed it's a, it's to
0: It's a work of art. But here's the truth. I don't look at that until I'm on the plane going to the destination. I don't, I don't know who's going to pick me up at the airport. I don't know what my first meeting is. None of that stuff, because I'm not really that organized. But Jim organizes me, and I know exactly what's next because of Jim's work. Does that make you feel better? Yes.
2: Good. I think that's going to make a lot of people feel better, because the goal is not to be super organized. The goal is to get things accomplished that you want to get accomplished. And these tools are just that, tools to help you do it. Exactly. So we really are out of time. And uh, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Megan, and for your answers and being candid and helpful. And thank you for the invitation to join you
0: today. Thanks for Thanks, being Larry. here. Join us next time when we'll talk about a secret weapon that can boost your leadership, your well-being, and your enjoyment of life. I'll show you why every leader needs friends. No, not that kind.
1: Sorry, guys. <laughs> Until then, lead to win. Until then. Until
0: then. Lead to Win. This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by the Full Focus Planner, a paper planner to help you plan your year, design your days, and achieve your biggest goals. Find out more at fullfocusplanner.com.